everyone. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the All Might Be Edified Discussions on Servant Leadership. I'm Keith Pancow, the host of this podcast, and I have the wonderful privilege to be here with Casey Arguez, who is an active duty lieutenant commander in the United States Coast Guard. She currently serves as the executive officer of the Pacific Strike Team, where she leads a unique, highly trained cadre of Coast Guard professionals who are recognized worldwide as an expert authority in the preparation for and response to oil discharges hazardous substances releases, weapons of mass destruction events, and other emergencies on behalf of the American public. Prior to this assignment, Casey served as the Safety and Environmental Health Division of Health, Safety, and Work Life Center in Norfolk, Virginia, responsible for execution of industrial hygiene and environmental health services across the Coast Guard, including safety support services during contingency responses nationwide. Other assignments include Assistant Chief of Innocent Management Division of Sector New Orleans from 2012 to 2015 and Deck Watch Officer aboard the Coast Guard Cutter Jarvis, which is now decommissioned in Honolulu, Hawaii from 2010 to 2012. Casey graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree in Marine Environmental Science from the U.S. Coast Guard Academy in 2010. She received her Master of Science in Work Environment with two concentrations, Occupational and Environmental Health, ergonomics and safety from the University of Massachusetts and was the recipient of the Department of Public Health's Dean Award in 2017. Her capstone research centered on an analysis of psychosocial hazards encountered by responders during contingency responses. Lieutenant Commander Arguez earned her registered environmental health specialist credentials from the National Environmental Health Association in 2018 and her Certified Emergency Manager Certification from the International Association of Emergency Managers in 2019. Casey grew up on the South Shore of Marshfield, Massachusetts. She currently resides in Novato, California, with her husband, Steve, who is also an active duty lieutenant commander in the Coast Guard, and their three daughters, Kennedy, Taylor, and Madison. Well, welcome, Casey. It's so great to have you today. Thanks, Keith. I'm humbled and privileged to be here. You're a wonderful leader and a wonderful example, and I first met Casey when we were both stationed at Sector New Orleans, and she took over for me as the Deputy Chief of Incident Management at Sector New Orleans, where I was learning all things about pollution, and I was also the the Deputy Chief of Intelligence. After I was the Chief of Intelligence for many years, we got an extra officer, so I was allowed to go do some more things and learn about pollution response, and just really loved it. And since then, that's mostly what I've done in my career is, is things like Casey has done, and I just have really enjoyed it, but I will say really quickly, it became evident that Casey was a lot smarter than me and a lot more gifted at kind of managing the pollution response. So I'm sure I didn't make her life easy, but she came in and made the sector great. And fortunately for both of us, we had the amazing opportunity to be led by Captain Lushan Hanna, who was then Lieutenant Commander Hanna, who was a previous guest of this podcast. So we were both set up for success by that wonderful leader. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, but I can't agree about the whole smarter than than me comment uh, because I remember getting to sector New Orleans and looking at you when I reported and saying, dang, he has this incredible wealth of knowledge, a great attitude. And how could you be like that when there's all these oil spills and hurricanes and hazmat releases? So I think I was able to uh, learn my temperament from you. I can also agree that I'm extremely grateful to have been led by Captain Hannah, or now Captain Hannah, and be able to try to fill in his footsteps, which is pretty difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely set the bar high. You know, it's interesting you talk about demeanor under fire. I think in all emergency management specialists or professionals, there comes this point where you recognize that you react to disasters different than people. For me, 
I grew up in a very chaotic home and environment. And I just learned to be cool under pressure early on. And as I've grown up, I've started to realize that I really love to create order out of chaos. And so for me, I start to really dial in. I get energized by disasters. I, you know, it's, I, I hate to say it because I don't like to be the person hoping for disasters, but I find that I get great fulfillment about being there. I, how's it for you responding to disasters? Have you noticed anything similar? Or what, how do you prepare yourself? That's funny you said that. So the whole look, not hoping for a disaster, but getting some sort of adrenaline and excitement from it. So I do call myself an ambulance chaser where I absolutely love having this complicated, stressful event. And you're the one that's coming in to, like you said, provide order to chaos, right? Using ICS and all of those uh, terms. I, for me though, I grew up in a pretty, I would say stable environment, but my dad was, who was one of, I would say one of my role models or leaders, he was a police officer for about 40 years. He just retired. So I grew up seeing him different than me, but on the same schedule, midnight to seven in the morning, going out and patrolling our, the tiny suburb on the South shore of Massachusetts. I can't say there was too many exciting things going on, but yet I was able to see the whole concept of the importance of public service and plus the emergency response aspect of that and thought that it's almost ingrained in my blood to want to serve the public and want to be able to help and save the community. Fast forward 30, 30 some odd years. I'm not going to tell you my age, but see, now I'm doing that too, just like my dad, which is a pretty exciting thing when you look at it. Yeah, that is. It's such a wonderful influence and to tie it back to, and a lot of nights wondering, you know, if your dad was safe and different things like that, those stresses and managing those stresses, although not necessarily in a very chaotic environment, I think that there's also something to be said about learning how to deal with the internal stressors and the external stressors, because as we look at crisis management and all of its many forms, one of the major components of being successful at it is managing the internal external stressors of all the people involved. In my opinion, that's how you get really good at managing these events is because you have to pay attention to the the stressors of the people around you, because it just takes one person to go off the rails to really hurt uh, emergency response. So have you thought a little bit about how that influence of your dad or other influences helped you think about how you can help other people manage their internal and external stresses? Yeah. So tying it back to when I was growing up, I was an extremely shy and reserved girl. I would always sit back, kind of just watch the surroundings, watch people. And I truly believe that spending that time almost in my head and being able to observe others and looking at those emotional almost having a higher emotional intelligence of picking up on those nuances of human behavior to be able to, to pick up on things that most people couldn't. And so fast forward into serving in a leadership role for emergency responses, it's critical because particularly in oil spills and hazmat releases, you're coming together quickly as a team. So it's really important to be able to not only understand what people's roles and authorities and regulatory authorities are, 
but to understand them as a person and how they operate, because that can clearly make or break how a responsible function, because it's always, you need a strong leadership at the top to translate down to the bottom. But then looking at our responders, most of our responders, like here at the Pacific Strike Team, within a moment's notice, you could be called out to go to an oil spill or a natural disaster or a man-made disaster. And these responders are dropping everything with their family life to then fly out to wherever in the nation. And most recently we deployed a team to Peru because they had a major oil spill down there, leaving their family, leaving their responsibilities to then do the Coast Guard's work. And I think it's important for us in those leadership positions to see not only do we want to get the job done, but we need to be able to take care of our people effectively, not just with equipment, not just with personal protective equipment and air monitors looking out for their what's going in their medical record for any exposures or safety concerns, but really in a holistic sense, because they're being exposed to extremely high levels of stress. And there are factors that we can control as part of a response that can help mitigate that stress, right? So long working hours, having appropriately work rest shifts, having the right supervisor for the job with the appropriate span of control, having clear communication standards. These are all things that can help reduce stress of responders that are deployed out into the field. But it's not just the responsibility of this SOFA, you know, the safety officer, excuse me. It's it's the responsibility of the leadership and the incident commanders to be able to have that lens and vision to protect those people that are working for them and really and truly doing that hard work for the response and for the community. Yeah. Thanks for that answer, Casey. There's so many wonderful things that you talked about or even alluded to in there that I want to unpack a little bit one by one. And the first one I want to talk about is this idea that taking care of the responder is a more holistic thing than just outfitting them, equipping them, or you know, paying their salary. There's And over my career, I've seen a a wider discussion on what it means to make sure the responder is response ready or capable of doing their job to the best of their capacity. And it's really refreshing to see this conversation grow over my career. I remember I started in the Navy and I deployed to Iraq for the Navy and other deployments. And a lot of times when you brought up your family issues, the question would be, well, did we issue your family in your sea bag? Well, obviously no. And they'd say, well, that's not our problem as was the typical response we would get. And it's just, we know there's been great research to talk about how that stress of your family can just make you less productive. So if we can learn to minimize those stressors, as you talked about a little bit, that makes the responder in so many ways. And this I think has an application to any organization because when you're stressed about your family, if you have a life event, a sick parent or child or someone in the hospital or a death in the family, all of these things, right? If we're not helping you manage those life events or those stressors, we're not helping you bring the fullest capabilities to the table. And so I love that you brought that up. And now you have an extremely high operational temple at the strike teams. I know that maybe our listeners don't understand how often these strike teams, we have three in the United States for you listeners. We have the Pacific strike team, the Gulf strike team, and the Atlantic strike team, the Pacific based in California, the Gulf in Alabama, and the Atlantic in New Jersey. And they cover regions of the world. They, they work for the American public, but they really cover regions of the world and they provide support worldwide. So you have people any given day deployed all around the country and the world. And 
they can go at a moment's notice, as you said. So how do you, as a leader there at the strike team, help these individuals manage their life events along with being ready to deploy and do their job? That's a great question. So I think for us, when we have new folks coming in, well, even before we have new folks that report, we do a pretty significant interview with the member to make sure that that particular member and their family are 100% committed and understand what the responsibilities of being on the strike team entail. Because oftentimes you have people that want just want to stay in the area or may have other motivations. So that soon weeds a few candidates out. Then when members report, I would say that it is a very comprehensive pipeline training to not understand their requirements as a response member or response technician, those members that are going out to actually mitigate an oil spill or hazardous material release. But we also provide support to their dependents and their families in the area. So we'll have, we rely very heavily on our ombudsman, who is essentially a volunteer spouse or dependent that represented, that I consider part of the command, that is that liaison or bridges the gap between our dependents and the command to be able to be on the lookout to identify any risk factors or concerns that may impede their particular family when that member is deployed. Me as an XO, I'm very, very committed to balancing, and I hate using the term work life, but in the Coast Guard, we love, we love to use it, but being able to understand that there are resources, not outside of just your qualifications and your professional development, but being able to leverage if you're having a financial issue or you need financial concerns, or if you need some sort of additional support, perhaps from psychologists using employee assistance programs that I pretty much every week will foot stomp that these are available resources that are ready to be used. And I use myself because this is a really stressful environment to operate in at times. It's my job as their leader to be able to remove that curtain and let them know that it's okay to know that you need help or that you want help. That's okay. And we're going to help you, whether it's with whatever resource. So that was great. I love it. One thing you started with, first of all, choosing the right people. I think that's important. We often, we don't spend enough time on talking about this in a lot of organizations. And I know in a lot of places they have human resources departments fully dedicated to hiring the right people. And sometimes even they miss the mark, but getting the right people for your organizational fit is super important. See, Casey talked about how she recognizes and the whole strike force community recognizes the high stress of this, these jobs. So they find people from the start that recognize these jobs are going to be high stress. And then they equip them with the tools to manage them. I just love that you find the right people and you equip them properly with the proper physical tools, but also some of the emotional support tools as well. And what I really loved about how you discussed that is that you as a leader modeled the way you talked about how you use those tools and you call upon that support as a, someone in the organization. When I see a leader do something like I have a captain right now, we preach health and fitness in the coast guard. And I have a captain that she goes out of her way to show us each day when she's going to work out at the gym so that we feel comfortable taking time to do that and put our health and fitness as a priority. And I in my career, that hasn't always been the case, but I really 
have appreciated that captain doing that to give me the license to do it as well. And so that I think is super important. And then, you know, watching people and talking about people using those resources to recognize when something's out of the norm or there's a, a challenge that arises, I think is especially important as well. You know, in the Coast Guard, you mentioned the safety officer. We often say safety is everyone's responsibility. We ask all the time, who can stop a job or a work site because of safety? And the answer is always anybody can if it's safety related, right? But the reality is we say that, but there's sometimes instances all throughout our organization, other organizations where you might not feel that you have the full authority to actually stop something or to speak out against safety because, you know, our actions don't always mirror our words. So how do you help people recognize that they can speak up, not just for safety, but when they have issues of themselves or when they recognize issue with someone else that they can have this place of trust, they can speak up and have open dialogue with you so that you can build a more holistic environment for the people that work there. I think the first thing that it comes down to is establishing a level of trust. So whether you're on a deployment or here at the unit that you quickly can understand and listen and appreciate the feedback that a member is getting and establishing the trust between them one-on-one. And part of that comes also with a respect based. In the military structure, it's usually pretty formal and a, a command and control aspect. But for me, the bet, the most important item is to, for me to trust someone, I also need to also respect them by whether it's taking decisive action and advocating for, like you said, for the safety of responders or an incident. I think some of the best leaders were the ones that in a very, whether it's a complicated or high stress evolution was able to take decisive action while also considering the importance of safety of our members and empowering our members to execute that decision or to have that voice. I would say in pretty much in every deployment or every mission that we have, they're always the priority of the instant command is number one is safety. It's up to the instant command to, to be able to foster a culture that truly prioritizes that. So that's empowering our members. And when they have a safety concern to take immediate action. Uh, we I recently deployed to uh, the Los Angeles Long Beach oil spill. It was a major oil spill back in October, about 25,000 gallons that was discharged into Huntington Beach and stemmed across a hundred miles of shoreline. And there were two particular instances where we had contracted cleanup workers that were cleaning up the oil. So they were dressed down in Tyvek and there were quite a few public security incidents where those members were being harassed. A lot of times there was a lot of discriminatory language being thrown, um, racial slurs at these particular individuals that worked for the response. Yes, they weren't uniformed. They weren't coasties. They weren't state employees. These were third-party contractors that were hired by the responsible party or government. But as the deputy instant commander, that was a critical piece because that type of behavior is never okay. And so we quickly, as a unified command, engage local security. So the local police, the lifeguards to start surveilling, to monitor, and ended up issuing a violation to one of the public members that was harassing these employees. And that was up to us. There were plenty of members in between that 
we're briefing it up to the level of command. And I am proud that we were able to have that decisive clear action to be able to help and protect the safety of those responders. And it all comes down to trust in the command. There's a really great action that you modeled there that I think we can use more of in the servant leadership discussion. And that's not expecting someone else to take care of a problem, but recognizing an issue and taking clear, decisive action to resolve it. Everyone deserves a workplace free of harassment. I think that most of us realize that, but too often, so many of us are afraid to take the action it takes to eliminate that harassment. And whether you're a deputy incident commander or somewhere in that chain, all of us have a responsibility to do what we can to end that harassment. And I'm happy to hear that the chain of command and the people working brought it to the highest levels of attention. So it could be dealt with appropriately. And so those people could have a workplace free of harassment. This work of cleaning up oil spill and Tyvek suit is not necessarily comfortable or easy when, and everything's perfect. So having to deal with harassment that has nothing to do with the job, just because of someone's own ignorance or hate, you know, just not okay. And so that's a great example of what a servant leader is and does is to really step in and to make the workplace an environment that fosters us to become the best version of ourselves. And I know you and I have talked, kind of switching gears a little bit, you and I have talked a little bit about our own career paths. We have similar aspirations in the Coast Guard. We both love environmental response. We love incident management. And for those of you listening, you might not realize it, but in the Coast Guard, we have different career paths. And for Casey and I, we're both what they consider response officers. Within that, we have search and rescue. We have law enforcement activities, whether it's drug or migrant interdiction or other law enforcement. And then we have the marine environmental response are basically what we call the three pillars of the trident of to be a well-rounded response officer. And sometimes as you look at the, it's very diverse mission sets for us, whereas some of the other career paths in the coast are their mission sets are more closely aligned where they make more sense to do a lot of different things for us. It's, it can be very hard to be well-faceted in each of those. And so at sometimes in our career, we have to decide, are we going to be somewhat versed in all of those? Or are we going to be really hyper-specialized or somewhere in between? And, you know, we talked a little bit about how I chose to be a little hyper-specialized, which limited my career opportunities, but I did so intentionally because that was the path I wanted to follow. And sometimes, you know, we get these very generalistic guidance from career development officers and things like that and help help us. And very often those discussions are not grounded in who I am as an individual. They're grounded in what's best for the service, which I understand because I'm a servant of the taxpayers and I have to help the service. But how do you balance that need to be your authentic self to help reach in and develop people through their authentic selves and recognizing that the best version of all the people around us is not always what we have in our site as an organization. It's not always what we have in our site as an individual. So how do you work to mute those external voices that might limit your ability to bring out the best in others? That's a great question. So I am in the throes of that decision. After, I think I say that this position at the PST as the executive officer has been my dream job since I was an ensign, a little bitty ensign on Coast Guard Cutter Jarvis. And I look at myself when I was on Jarvis as a deck watch officer going underway for four months at a time, 
doing law enforcement boardings, traveling all over the world from Russia to Japan to the Federated States of Micronesia. And I knew that wasn't for me. I knew that I didn't want to be a, a cutterman. I didn't want to be afloat my entire career, which obviously was not in the, the eyes of my CEO who has spent his whole life underway. So for me, what really grounded me and having some sort of I don't want to say to, you know, trick myself into still doing a great job was the people on board. I was exposed to all sorts of different rates and specialties and experiences that I could learn from them and grow as a person and grow as a leader. And I'm talking, these are anyone from a non-rate to someone that's been on cutters for over 30 years as a master cutterman. And I took little leadership nuggets from all of these individuals to start compiling them, you know, in my little toolkit, not only as a leader, but also just as a person and hopefully a future Coast Guard leader. But now a decade later, working towards that vision or goal I had of being an EXO where my whole time is just taking care of the people I work with, personnel issues, any with you know, our civilians or active duty or reserves, which usually sound like a nightmare to some. It's a servant leader's dreams because you're, you're just constantly trying to help people professionally and personally that I, my cup is filled essentially for what my vision was the Coast Guard. And now I'm at that crossroads, like you were, of is my passion to continue driving into the senior ranks of the Coast Guard in order to make positive change and influence, which means taking a backseat to my passions as being a marine environmental response professional? I don't know. Is it to play the game of roulette and try to get to those jobs that I... I walk in every day and I have this flavor of passion because I love that technical skill and work as related to oil spills and hazmat releases, which I sound like a total nerd saying that, but it's true. I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is for me right now. It's knowing that both of those directions and what's kept me going since I graduated from the Coast Guard Academy in 2010 was that in whatever job I have, I will be able to still help the people and help the future leaders of the Coast Guard. It sounds cliche, but it really is the foundations of any servant leader is that I walk into work every day feeling happy, not just because of a deployment or because of we, we reach a certain metric in our professional unit and in goals towards the end goal and feeding Coast Guard strategy, but it's I helped our YN1 get their temporary separation approved. I was able to help our member that had this huge financial stress through a Coast Guard mutual assistance loan. I took an hour of my time to craft a thorough endorsement for that member to apply to become a Marine inspector. It's those little things that I find that keep me going every day and wanting me to come to work. And I'm not sure. And I'm one thing that I do know is that both of those paths will still have that. They'll look a little different. That's for sure. So, I mean, we'll see, but that's kind of how I'm operating nowadays, just day by day, looking for the next fire to put a personnel fire to put out, I guess I would say. I love that answer. I really love how you connected being an executive officer to being 
the dream job of a servant leader. You know, too often, I think, especially in the military, we, we have this vision of an executive officer that they have to be grumpy, they have to be mean, they have to be able to give people hard news. And I think there's a kernel of truth in that because you have to make hard decisions on behalf of people. But I love the connection to servant leadership because in my mind, a servant leadership is willing to do things that might be hard to help people become the best versions of themselves. And sometimes people are on a bad path and you have to help them get on a better path. And that can be hard. It can be very challenging. But if you take it from the standpoint that you talked about, then it's very rewarding to know that although the decision might be to help that person move to a different organization, that might've been what's best for that individual and for our organization and the other people within our organization as well. So there's such a great foundation to take the role of an executive officer from servant leadership. And I wish that we would make that part of our executive officer training, because then I think we would have a better understanding of the role of an executive officer and not just these visions of an old grumpy person, you know, making everybody miserable because I love that's definitely not what comes to mind when I think of Casey Arguez as an executive officer. And I think you're amazing at it. And so that's perfect. Going back to this, this, we've talked a little bit about balance and even work-life balance. It's interesting. I loved how you kind of cringed at saying that because I heard a really respected leader at actually a church training, a church leadership training. I do a lot of volunteer work for the community and for my church. And so he was a leader from outside the area, David A. Bednar. He comes in and someone asked him that, how do you balance all these communing demands? And he said, balance is a myth. He said, when you are focused on something, you are inherently not focused on something else. As soon as you realize that, you can start to prioritize appropriately by focusing on the things that matter most and then working down the line. And I, and it just, I love that because we so often think of this scale, right? And we're trying to balance everything, but a better approach is saying, what's my priority at the moment? Or in your instance, the priority obviously isn't choosing the path. It's how can I use these paths to help people? And then you just let the rest fall into peace. And I think that foundation and that recognizing what gives you fulfillment helps you prioritize more appropriately. And I really appreciate that. And so any advice you could give to our listeners on how you do that intentionally? I'm glad that you picked up on my cringe for work-life, work-life balance, right? That's all I heard after I graduated from the academy, particularly as a female officer. When you start looking at what what you want your life to be, I knew I wanted to have kids. Um, I knew I wanted to have a family, but I also wanted a really successful, intense career in, in emergency response. Those those two concepts are, are often very hard to accomplish together. So everyone just pushed, you just need a strong work-life balance. I think that's nonsense. I agree with you. Mr. Dyson, the president of Coca-Cola, his comparison really resonated with me because if I'm like, if I'm not into work-life balance and juggling in that concept, what am I looking for? And he said it best. We have five balls in the air and we're juggling them. I'm not sure if you've heard this or your listeners have heard this, but you're juggling these balls. Four of them are glass. One of them is rubber. The four that are glass are family, health, friends, and your spirit. The last one that is rubber is work. So if you're juggling and you drop one of the glass balls, it shatters. You can't get it back. 
But with a rubber ball, it can bounce right back and you can pick it up and move along. So for me, that's really resonated. I am married to my husband, who's a lieutenant active duty, lieutenant commander in the Coast Guard. Uh, He was just overseas for a year in Saudi Arabia. And we have three little girls that are seven, five, and two. Our oldest is special needs. She is autistic, which obviously navigated our course as a family. But I look at this particularly last year when my husband was overseas, I was by myself in Virginia working at the Health Safety Work-Life Service Center in the height of a pandemic. And let me preface that my main job was COVID-19 safety. So I'm in the throes of pushing out operational guidance to help our Coast Guard unit to be able to protect their responders through various um, mitigation controls, whether engineering, PPE-wise, administrative through infection control plans. Meanwhile, I have three little ones, little girls at home with me by myself. That's a lot. I always just had that vision of me juggling those five balls and knowing that for me, I couldn't let those glass ones shatter. And it was only day by day that you couldn't think about it more than 24 hours in advance, because no matter what, something was going to come up and you were just going to have to figure it out. You just find a solution. And then if you needed help, that you tried your best to find a support network. I can say that that's something that I'm still working on as a leader. You know, it's funny after a decade and a half of being in the Coast Guard that you would think we would have this huge rally of support. But here we are in California. My family's on the East Coast. My husband's family's in Arizona. We're still just taking it day by day and keeping those five balls juggling in the air. And if that work one starts to drop, Perhaps one of my shipmates can help me out. Or if one of the glass ones start to fall, perhaps my, you know, my husband is able to take a day off of work to address. So it's all just about juggling those five balls in the air for me. I love that visualization. And as you were talking, I had this image in my mind of the people around us stepping in that we're juggling really well and helping grab that extra bouncing ball and passing it around. I think that's why that visualization resonates so much because it bounces up and other people could help. Yes. And I love how you discuss that and modeled that in your behavior. And I think as a leader, that's important for people to see someone like you doing that thing because then they know they can do it. And before I ask one of my last questions, I want to leave us with our challenge this week because I just love that thought. I challenge everyone to think about their own priorities. What are you juggling right now? What's close to dropping? Is it your glass balls or is it your rubber ball? Are you inviting people into your circle to help you juggle more fully and not drop those glass balls? So think about that. Think about your priorities and how you're managing them and how you're inviting people in to help you with those priorities. Now, I really admire you, Casey. And I think, you know, as someone who's been deployed, uh, you know, I know what it's like to be the deployed member in many instances and to worry about your family on the other end. And it's just admirable to see you in such a high visibility leadership role with a, you know, co-military deployed spouse, managing your kids, talking about these trials and tribulations and, and working through those things. And I think about how so often we minimize or detract from the sacrifices women in our service have to make. And we almost make them 
you have to choose family or you have to choose work. And too often, I think that our young females coming into the service, they think that's the reality. You have to choose family or you have to choose work. And so I really feel powerful about representation. And so I applaud you for being a great example to the uprising women in our organization. And I also want to acknowledge the fact that we just had our first female admiral nominated to be the next commandant in the Coast Guard. And so, you know, people talk about identity politics and all those things and distractions, but the reality is, is representation matters. Visualization is very real and I need to be able to visualize myself succeeding at the highest levels. And so as a woman, what does it mean to you to see the next commandant be a woman and how does that resonate with you? It's awesome. I would have never thought that we would have had uh, in my lifetime. Well, actually, I'll take that back. I think when I came up through the Coast Guard, that the possibility of a woman, of a female commandant, I never thought about it. I just assumed that it would be another male figure that was successful in their career and then assumed the leadership position. It wasn't until recently when I saw Admiral Fagan's face in the photo of where her daughter is putting on her shoulder boards, that it it hit me like a ten of bricks. Not only did we have the first female commandant of the Coast Guard, but she's also a mom. I was like, holy moly! That who would have ever thought that could be in the realm of possibility? Uh, particularly because you we have this narrative that you can either be a successful mother, or you can be a successful Coast Guard officer. And then I'm sure you can sprinkle in other different metrics in between because you're always pulled in a a ton of different directions. But just seeing that image resonated me. And I'm a mid-grade officer in the Coast Guard. I am so happy and grateful for our junior officers and our junior enlisted females that this is their normal. They won't know, they won't have the feeling as before of just anticipating someone that doesn't look like them in the highest position in the Coast Guard and influencing strategic change on a national and global scale. That's amazing. But I think that it doesn't stop now. I think, you know, we check the box with having a female mom in the Coast Guard as the commandant, but we still need minorities in that position. We need to start looking at the Coast Guard in that holistic frame of it is important to have people that you can you can compare yourself to and say I can do it I can see myself be in that position just from having representation I would want to say too at the Pacific Strike Team currently that the the three most senior positions are all female and they're all moms which is super cool. My CEO, Commander Stacey Creasy, is one of the most smartest technical experts I've ever met, particularly in the marine environmental community. And she has two daughters, myself, three daughters. My operations officer, who is a prior enlisted, spent a tour over in Path Forestwa, worked her way up through the ranks. She's now a lieutenant. She has two little girls. It's amazing. I would have never thought in my wildest dreams in the Coast Guard that you would have three female leaders as part of the Pacific Strike Team that is responsible for deploying worldwide to oil spills and hazardous material releases. That sound, it sounds like a joke, right? But here we are with a successful crew, with an inclusive team 
that I can safely say everyone walks through that door happy to be at work. And I'm not to my own horn, but I got stats to prove it from our annual survey, which is an amazing feeling. It's so cool. So thanks for bringing it up because I think as a female officer, you forget to reflect on where you came from and then how the Coast Guard has shifted with representation. And I can only hope that, and I do truly believe that we are pushing the, we're pushing the narrative in the right way to start having more, having minorities in those particular roles, because that, that needs to happen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And for those of you listening, if you don't believe representation matters, rewind and listen to Casey's excitement. Please rewind and listen to her excitement. That should be beyond the words, all the evidence you need that representation truly does matter. I think for too long, we've convinced ourselves that it doesn't matter as much as we think it does. And I would say the opposite is true. Representation absolutely matters. We need to be able to visualize ourselves. We need to see people that we relate to, people that resonate with us. And they don't have to look exactly like us, but we need to see ourselves in them. And so think about that. Think about ways your organization is inviting a wider, more diverse representation of the greater public at large, of the world at large. You know, these strike teams deploy around the world. They want to understand communities around the world, how to work with them. That's a great mindset to build your representation. And I just love it. I couldn't have asked for a better answer to that question. So thank you. And now before we wrap up, any closing comments you want to leave us with today, Casey? No, Keith, thank you for the the work that you're doing on this podcast. I think servant leadership is something that resonates with a lot of us that feel sometimes like the black sheep in our respective workplaces because we do things a little different. We have a lot of empathy. We have humility. We appreciate authenticity and we just want to take care of our people. So I think it's really great that you're highlighting that here and making it, making it okay for us to come together as that group and to share our experiences. So thank you for that. Thanks so much, Casey. A wonderful example of servant leadership. And thanks all you for joining us on another episode of the All Might Be Edified discussions on servant leadership. Please like, rate, and review the podcast. Send me any comments you might have. I love to hear from you listeners. And also share it with those that you think might benefit from it. Go out and reach out to those people. Even if you don't share the podcast, share some of these ideas or implement them in your life so that you can take better care of people. And have a wonderful day. 